Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Luke 16. Luke 16 will be in verses 1 to 13. I'll just tell you a little bit where we're going. Uh, Once summer begins, we're going to do four weeks in the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you pronounce it. Uh, Then we're going to do the book of Nehemiah, and that will take us all the way to September. So we'll be doing two Old Testament uh, books, one prophetic and uh, one clearly narrative, though you'll see they're both somewhat narrative. Let's go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for the gospel of Luke. We thank you for what you have taught us. We thank you, Father, for the song that we sang, and may it be more than words. May we surrender all. May we surrender our lives to you. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would guide your word to our hearts, that not just hearing it, we would be doing it, living it, embracing it. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. A few years back, Jack purchased a new Mercedes-Benz 350 SUV. He was really excited about it. It was the first luxury vehicle he had ever owned, and it was also an SUV, so it could be used for family purposes. The day he purchased it, his brother Alex called him up. Alex said, are we still on for duck hunting tomorrow morning? Jack said, absolutely, we'll take my new vehicle. Alex arrived at four in the morning. It was still winter, so it was dark out. They loaded up the shotguns, a cooler full of Coke, and Alex's dog, they head out to a lake that they had been on many times before. The ice was plenty thick, and they drove the SUV out on the ice. They got out, everything was prepared. They now knew it was time to create a large hole in the ice because they wanted the ducks that flew over to see the water and come down and land. Obviously, you needed to create a hole away from the SUV. It would be a labor-intensive process, but Alex had a different idea. He went to his bag and pulled out a stick of dynamite with a short fuse He lit the stick and he threw it a long way away. Unfortunately, when the stick of dynamite hit the ground, his dog saw the opportunity for catch and fetch. And so he went running after it. The two men realized what was about to happen. So they picked up their shotguns and they began to shoot over the head of the dog, hoping to scare the dog into dropping the now lit dynamite. But the dog, hysterical, not used to being shot at, kept the dynamite in his mouth, went flying by them, dropped the dynamite next to the SUV and kept running. Jack and Alex knew exactly what was about to happen, and they watched the new SUV, one day old, explode, and then there was that large hole they needed for duck hunting when they watched the SUV sink to the bottom of the lake. The two of them stared at the hole for quite some time, not knowing what to say. Finally, Alex went over to the cooler and he said, well, at least the Coke is still good. They both kind of laughed weakly. 
And then they sat down to devise a plan of how to explain this to the insurance company. They actually ended up lying. They were caught in fraud. It turns out that Jack's insurance did not cover his SUV sinking to the bottom of a lake because of dynamite. So now he was on the hook for the cost of the SUV, the recovery plan of the SUV out of the lake, and a fine for fraudulent claims. To say that it was a bad day would be an understatement. Fraud, it got him in trouble. Now today's text is also about fraud. The thing about today's text, however, is it is probably the most disconcerting of all of Jesus' parables. If you're familiar with Luke 16, 1 to 13, you know that you read it and you probably scratch your head because the hero of the story is a fraudulent man. And we think to ourselves, what is Jesus doing? What is he saying? What is the message that he's giving? Surely... This is not a crime does pay parable. And yet at first glance, it might appear that way. But in fact, it's not. Let's pick up in Luke 16. I want to read all 13 of the first verses. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you no longer can be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, you will entrust to you the true riches. Or who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. As you and I begin, 
we have to honestly admit that some of Jesus' parables are a bit disconcerting, especially some of the heroes of the parables. I think of Luke chapter 18, where we're introduced to the unjust judge. And in verse 4 of chapter 18, it says that he neither feared God nor did he fear man. And yet he appears in some ways to be the object lesson of the parable. I think of Matthew 10, verse 16, where Jesus tells Christ's followers that we are to be as shrewd as snakes or serpents. I think of 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and Revelation 16, 15, where Jesus tells us that when he comes back at the second coming, he's going to come like a thief. Now put that in your theological bag and think about it for a moment. Jesus compares himself to a thief. And here in this text, we have an unscrupulous manager who's commended because he's shrewd. Now one of the things we need to understand about parables is this. You can't press all of the details of a parable or you end up with heresy. What you and I need to do is remove an overriding principle from the parable and apply it to our lives. So when we're talking about the unjust judge whose attitude and values are terrible, we don't imitate that. The part we imitate is the widow who is persistent asking for her needs and finally the unjust judge grants the needs of the individual. So the parable teaches us to be persistent like the widow and finally to grant what is right like the judge. When you think of the be as shrewd as snakes, it's telling us to be wise in a world that might not have our best interests at heart. When Jesus tells us he's coming like a thief, He's not telling us to imitate the actions of a thief. He's saying he's coming at any moment. Suddenly, imminently, we need to be prepared because when Jesus comes, he expects to find Christ's followers living God-centered, God-glorifying, God-honoring lives. And today, in today's text, we're going to see that the man is commended not because he's dishonest, but he's commended because he's thought wisely about the future. Now in our parable, you and I meet a commodities broker. Now the commodities broker happens to be a CFO. He's a chief financial officer. I don't think embezzlement or misappropriation of funds is going on in the text. The word used for his mismanagement is the same word used in Luke chapter 15 to describe the prodigal son and how he squandered away the money of his inheritance. This manager has squandered his owner's money away. It's been mismanagement rather than embezzlement. And so what this guy does is cause for termination. 
And so he receives a pink slip. He's terminated. He's told to hand in his fob key and his passwords, and, and he's showed the door. He's done. He's terminated. And he thinks to himself, what am I going to do? Now, this is the time before the Frank Dodd Act. Whatever you think of Frank Dodd Act, it doesn't matter. There were no golden parachutes. He wasn't going to get a termination package. He's out the door. He's lost his ability to make a living. There is nothing that he can do. So what does our pink uh, letter recipient do? Fraud. Actually, Jesus uses a different word. He says he's shrewd, and that's perfect. He's shrewd. He thinks carefully about how he's going to handle the future because the past is now gone. And the key to the text is probably verse 8, which says the sons of this world are wiser or more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. In other words, those who live in this world but do not know the Lord think more wisely about the future than those who have an eternal inheritance with God in heaven. That was Jesus' clear observation. So exactly what happens in this parable? As we've noted, the CFO is out of his job. Now he makes a self-evaluation. He says, you know, I'm kind of soft. I can't do hard labor. The only curling I've been doing is 16-ounce destroyers for the last number of months. There's no way I can dig ditches. And I'm too proud to beg, so I've got to think my way through this. And so he goes to several individuals. He's a commodities dealer. He goes to the first one, and he says in verse 6, How much do you owe my master? And he says, well, I owe him uh, 800 gallons of oil. 800 gallons of oil is what 146 olive trees produce. It's a lot of oil. He says, I'll tell you what, take out your pen, cross out 800 gallons and make it 400 gallons. Now, you and I kind of wish this guy worked for our mortgage company. Take out the mortgage, cross it out, cut it in half. We would like that. In fact, what he's actually given this man is six months of wages. He has lined the pocket of the man who owes 800 gallons with six months of profit, and he's hoping eventually for a kickback when he has need. <coughs> Excuse me. He then goes to the next individual. The next individual, he says, uh, how much do you owe my master? He says, well, I owe him 100 measures of wheat, verse 7. Well, 100 measures of wheat is about 1,000 bushels of wheat. It's what is produced on 100 acres. He says to him, I'll tell you what, instead of 1,000 bushels of wheat, let's make it 800. And he lines the man's pocket with about three months' worth of wages, hoping that when he has need, there'll be a kickback. Now, this is rather shrewd. In fact, his owner, when he discovers it, says, wow, that was incredibly shrewd. Now, that's not what I would expect the owner to do. I would expect that the owner would say, <laughs> I'm going to drag all of you into court. 
we are going to fix this. You are going to pay me the amount that you owe me. But we have to remember that we're dealing with the first century, not the 21st century. You see, there's something very subtle in the text that we as Americans would not pick up, but it's very important to understanding the text. It's one word, the word usury. It's not in the text, but it's all over the text. It's implied by the text. The first century under reader or listener would have understood that usury is going on in the text. You see, in the first century, if you're a Jew and you loan another Jew money, you cannot charge interest. It's against the biblical law. <coughs> Let me read to you Deuteronomy 23, verse 19. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You can find the same thing in Exodus 22, Leviticus 25. So the law of the land said that when you deal in commodities and you loan somebody a certain amount of wheat or a certain amount of olive or olive oil, you could not charge interest. That's what the law said, but almost nobody followed it. What actually happened is this. You would come in and say, I really need to borrow 400 gallons of oil. And we'd write up a contract that said you borrowed 800 gallons of oil. We wouldn't say you borrowed 400 and I'm charging you 400 of interest because that's against the law. Instead, what you would do is write the contract out for the amount borrowed and the interest, and you'd make it all look like that was the amount borrowed. And so clearly what we have is a man who borrowed 400 gallons, but his loan says 800. A man who borrowed 1,000 bushels, or 800 bushels, but the loan says 1,000. Well, the CFO knows the real deal. He knows what was really borrowed. And so he shrewdly redoes the contracts. It's incredibly shrewd because his boss can't drag him into court, can he? What is his boss going to say? Oh, uh, well, yeah, I did actually only loan 400 and charged 800. I violated scripture. I, I really loaned only 800, but I'm charging 1,000. I violated scripture. It is very shrewd. It's very shrewd, and so he gets away with it. He's a smooth operator. Now comes the twist, verse 8. Let me read it again. For the sons of this world, unbelievers, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, Christ followers. Jesus is looking around, and he's saying, my observation is this. I see a number of children of the world. They don't have faith in God, but they know that there's some retirement years, some golden years, and they have wisely set aside preparing for it. They've been wise. They've been shrewd. They've planned ahead. They've done what they ought to do. But I also see some Christ followers who have all of eternity laying ahead of them 
but they have not invested in eternity. And so the sons of the world have invested in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and they've invested wisely, and the children of light have all eternity ahead of them, and they have not invested wisely. Let me again read verses 10 to 13. It will help us as we think about this text. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that is money, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The main point is this. We have the opportunity to invest in the future. In fact, verse 9 says that we ought to invest in friends for eternity. Verse 9 says that the shrewd man invested in friends for the day in which he was unemployed. He halved their bills. He cut out the interest. He lined their pockets. He expected a kickback so that when he was no longer in his present position, he might have provided for his future. He has invested in future friends. And verse 9 says that we are to invest in future eternal friends. Now we might say, I don't know what that means. Well, it means this. Dave and Carol and Brian and Linda are going to Haiti and they are going to talk to a dozen individuals who have graduated from a form of seminary that we've paid for. We've paid for it. They're also going to pick another dozen students to go through the next round of seminary, and we're going to pay for it. So someday this is what's going to happen. You and I are going to be in heaven, and some Haitian is going to walk up to us. And that Haitian is going to shake our hand and introduce himself and say, you know what? We've never met, but you invested in my education. And I went back and I invested in a couple hundred Haitians and shared the gospel. And they came to Christ and they shared the gospel and others came to Christ. I want you to meet the individuals you invested in. And they'll be there to greet you because we've invested wisely in the future and it's credited to our accounts, the friends that we invest in now who we will see in eternity in heaven. Again, verse 8, for the sons of this world, unbelievers, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light because they have invested well. One of the things I greatly admire about my parents 
and about my wife's parents is that they have invested well. I have absolutely no recollection of any time in my life when my parents and my in-laws have not invested well in the kingdom. I have no recollection of it. In fact, uh, I know more about my dad's finances than my father-in-law's and mother-in-law's, but with my mom and dad, they have their retirement portfolio, and then they have God's portfolio. And God's portfolio always does better than their retirement. Always. I don't know why. just kind of does. And not only do my parents give regularly to their church and give regularly to missions, they also invest in eternal portfolio in bigger projects, sometimes locally, sometimes globally. I think they've understood the text very well. And someday, I think that my parents and my in-laws are going to walk through heaven and they're going to meet individuals that they don't know anything about. They have never heard of their names. And they will discover that they are spiritual parents to multiple generations because of what they've done with what God has entrusted to them. Let me read it to you this way. They'll put it up on PowerPoint. This is just a little paragraph. Jesus is calling us to use the little we are presently entrusted with, verse 10, to think strategically or shrewdly, verse 8, by investing our unrighteous wealth, just a term meaning earthly money, (coughs) verse 9, in eternal friends, verse 9, and in doing so, one will be faithful, verse 12, which is a tangible demonstration of serving God rather than money, verse 13. St. Augustine wrote this in the 4th century about this parable. He said, why did the Lord Jesus Christ present this parable to us? He surely did not approve of the cheat of a servant who cheated his master. Why did the Lord set this before us? It is not because that servant cheated, but because that servant exercised foresight for the future. He was ensuring himself for a lifestyle that was going to end. And then Augustine drove home his point. He said, why would you, Christ's follower, not do likewise? I think of Dr. Carl F.H. Henry. Maybe that's a name you know, maybe not. He's probably America's greatest theologian of the 20th century. And he was actually a very wealthy man. (coughs) And he was asked in an interview about the affluence of America. And the interviewer was actually deriding our affluence. And Dr. Carl F.H. Henry didn't actually agree with the question that was asked. And he responded this way. He said, I don't think that God despises riches. In fact, he gave them to us. What he despises is the misuse of riches. And he rewards wise stewardship. Even Christian missions owes a great debt to the consecrated and often sacrificial philanthropy of well-to-do Christian leaders. What we need to do is enlarge the vision and burden 
of those to whom God has given much so they understand that they have an opportunity that is rare in the history of Christianity to substantially advance the way of Christ. Now why would I mention Dr. Carl F.H. Henry to a crowd that by and large has no idea who the guy is? It's because you've benefited from Dr. Carl F.H. Henry and you've benefited a great deal. Uh, several of our staff, Dr. Ken Moberg, uh, Jared, who was up here earlier, Brian Whitaker, uh, though not on our staff, Stephanie Haman, uh, a local counselor, my wife and myself, have all studied in the Carl F.H. Henry Library. Uh, he was a great theologian, and at Trinity, where all of us attended, uh, the library used to be called the Rolfling Library, but then he donated all of his own library and the money to build a much expanded library. And though I've never met Carl F.H. Henry, someday I'll get to greet him. He died in 2003, and I'll get to say, you know what, my congregation thanks you because some of my sorry sermons would have been even sorrier if I had not had access to your library all the years I studied there. And in fact, I still have access to his library today. That's an individual who understood that what God entrusted to him, he could invest in the next generation and the generation after that. That's what Jesus was getting at in the parable of Luke 16, 1 to 13. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the parable that reminds us that to whom much is given, much is expected, and that we have the privilege of investing in kingdom pursuits locally and globally. And someday we will even have the privilege of meeting eternal friends that we did not know that we had because of how we have chosen to use that which you have entrusted to us for wise stewardship. Help us to be wise stewards for your glory and the benefit of your kingdom and your people and those who are not yet your people, but someday will be. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.